it's a way to stay organized, but also it's, I don't have to bear that load in my head and do the work and commit the resources to keeping that in my memory, which I'm honestly probably not very good at because I'm already cognitively overloaded from so many other things. And so that's a way that I at least don't take up space with these other things and can have that space for, you know, writing a feature that I need to file tomorrow and stuff like that and not distracting myself constantly. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, freelance journalist and author. It seems like New Year's resolutions often come in self-improvement flavors. I see very few people who go into the New Year, say, determined to donate or volunteer more. I see a lot more people who go into it determined to get up earlier, be more focused, read more books, somehow get smarter or improve their creativity. Which is fine. Self-improvement is a great goal. But it of course begs the question, what should you do? Should you try to get up at 5am and journal in the dawn? Should you meditate? Should you go keto? Should you do drugs? Should you stimulate your brain with electrical helmets? Should you do all of the above? There's a lot of brain advice out there, and not all of it's great. Thankfully, we have Emily Willingham. She's a journalist, scientist, and science writer, and frequent contributor to Scientific American. She's the co-author of The Informed Parent, A Guide to Your Child's First Four Years, and her writing has appeared at The Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, The San Francisco Chronicle, and many other outlets. And last year, she published not one, but two books, Fallacy, Life Lessons from the Animal Penis, which you can hear about on one of our previous episodes, and now The Tailored Brain, From Ketamine to Keto to Companionship, A User's Guide to Feeling Better and Thinking Smarter. Emily, welcome. Hi, Bethany. How are you? I'm glad to be here. Oh, I'm so glad to have you back. Thank you. I wanted to start by noting that there is a ton to cover in this book. It is... (laughs) It is surprisingly short for so much information that's in it. (laughs) (laughs) It was twice as long. (laughs) This does not surprise me. (laughs) I had to cut like, you know, like 50% of what I had to hit the word count. (laughs) I feel that really strongly. Yeah. Um, But yeah, there's a ton to cover. There's no way we'll get to it all. Um, But there are also a lot of brain advice books out there from like diets to like dopamine hacking, I don't even know. What made you want to write a book on tailoring the brain? I really, when I was considering this book, what I wanted to do was kind of do what I'd been had been at for maybe a decade prior to it, which was to interrogate claims that people were making about autistic people and the autistic brain and kind of expand it to just, you know, any brain. And What I landed on was wanting to look at what we think we want to improve about our brains and evidence for the claims about things that do that or not, and compare that to what might actually offer benefit, not just for our own brains, but for the brains around us. And it's interesting because there's definitely interest here. Like a lot of people are very interested in tailoring their brains. And I was kind of wondering, why is that? Why do you think that we're just so desperate to like focus better, be more creative, be less moody? Why, why are we so into the idea of like improving our brain meat? 
I like that question because it was really kind of the question I was hoping to try to answer is, you know, why do you worry about how focused you are or how creative you are? Are you doing that from something that comes from inside of you and that you feel like needs to be addressed or, or is it society or something just telling you, you know, you're not creative enough, you should be more of something. And so I really wanted to kind of start from that and say, you know, why do we even care? Why do we want to be smarter individually rather than do the thing that everybody is seeking, especially right now, which is meaningful connection and sort of, you know, being the helpers in the world instead of the bad guy? You know, that's, it's interesting that you kind of note that we're kind of seeking connection. I feel like so much, I wonder how much of the desire to kind of tailor our brains is about kind of how individualistic much of Western society is. Like, if you want to be a good person, you need to be a good person by basically self-improving yourself to the point of weirdness, um, <laughs> as opposed to necessarily helping other people. That's not really where we go, kind of, as a society. We like, if you want to improve yourself, improve yourself, not... Yeah other things. <laughs> right. I'm just sitting here nodding my head because, I mean, there, there's a very strong aspect of individualism, right? And what can you do on your own? And I mean, that's been imposed on us like for problem, but like problem solving some of the biggest catastrophes facing us right now, right? Is at an individual level, you should recycle all of your plastic. This will save the world, you know, and that's just absolutely not true. And what we needed to be focusing on more, and I think especially in you know, a lot of Western societies, is not what can we each do alone, but what can we do together? I think that's such a, a good point. And that really does come across kind of in the book that maybe the best way to tailor your brain is other people. Right. And I, I would like to clarify, I'm not saying that as like an extrovert who's like, yay, people, they're all around me. And this is awesome. I mean, you know, meaningful connection with people whom you trust who are meaningful to you. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that's important too. like, yeah, it's you don't necessarily make your brain better by going out partying all the time. Right. <laughs> yeah, that might not act. You know, it just depends on who you are. That's right. That's where the tailoring comes in, right? Is if you get super invigorated by going out and partying, you know, and the aftermath of that just feels great to you, you know, it, back you know, when we get back to a world where we can do that, you go right ahead. <laughs> um and I noticed that in the book, you focus on some things more than others. So for example, there are sections on IQ, on creativity, on focus and mood and memory. Um, but there are also things kind of about the brain that you don't talk about. So for example, there's no section on tailoring your circadian rhythms, or I don't know, hacking pain, or hacking your movement. And I was wondering how you kind of picked the things that you did pick to focus on? How did you end up choosing the sections you did? And how did you end up, you know, cutting because you mentioned the book was twice as long. <laughs> that was so hard. And I know that, you know, lots of people are like, well, where was this thing? And it's probably somewhere in my laptop, <laughs> to be honest. But I didn't address some things because I felt like there were books out there that address them wholesale, like recent. So one of the things I was looking for was recency. Like, has this been addressed recently? And, you know, for things like sleep, lots of people write, you know, whole books about what you can do for that. And the other thing is, is I 
was trying to kind of tap into the zeitgeist, you know, what are people worrying about right now and talking about a lot? And I did write this during the pandemic. And so, you know, there were lots of concerns about stress and anxiety and mood and people just not being able to you know, be as creative as they wanted to be, like to the point that they were having trouble reading fiction, you know, and even embracing something creative in that way. And a lot of that guided it. Some of it was just by feel, but some of it was, you know, how recent is the evidence base for this? How much are people kind of wondering about these things? How much information is already accessible in book form? Yeah, and I notice um, one of the things I appreciate about this book is how much you follow the science um, and are very clear about this is where the science is right now. <laughs> I I really, you know, hand to gods came to this just with so much agnosticism. I didn't really have a commitment about most of the things that I'm writing about. And I did just kind of follow the evidence around. I was kind of, I, well, I won't say appalled because that's a kind of a strong reaction, but I was sort of, I guess, bemused by how mixed so much of the evidence is and how just very much in progress so many things are yeah i mean as a a former neuroscience person it, i am continuously boggled by how little we actually know about the brain i know i so know many studies, thinking, wow. so little that we know <laughs> i know and then they don't do them there's there's no kind of construct that people follow in general when they're doing the studies and they're just all over the place. It's very, you know, it's, it, most things are just mixed because the studies are not uniform. There's not a lot of systematic approach to it. Um, so you do start with an introduction to the brain and its anatomy, something which makes me extremely happy um, <laughs> because as a neuroscience person, I think everyone should know their thalamus from their medulla. Um, <laughs> but you also note that when we talk about the brain, we often sub in mechanical metaphors. We talk a lot about wires and computers. And I found that really striking. I hadn't really thought deeply about why we do that because we don't really think about the liver as like a mass spec machine. <laughs> right. That's yeah, a really, so I love that. I wish why, I thought of that. <laughs> why are we so quick to reduce both our bodies, but particularly our brains to these kind of mechanical metaphors? What's the draw there? It's interesting. I kind of, when when I think about it, I think about Descartes, you know, he was kind of wandering around going, look, it's all machines. <laughs> and and thinking that, it, you know, I'm no philosopher, so I can't speak to that with any kind of authority, but just kind of this whole idea that things are mechanistic and there are machines that underlie things. And, I mean, and the thing is, is that, you know, there is quote unquote wiring, right? <laughs> there's wowing in the plane. <laughs> there is wiring and th th there's electric signaling, right? You've got voltage and, you know, th th that's true. But that's 50% of the cells in the brain. The other half are not doing that at all. And I was in part inspired by some reading I had done about the effects of electro, this is going to sound so hippie and I apologize, but this is actually from some pretty established neuroscientists, electromagnetic fields and the organic matter of the brain and some other things. And I thought, you know, this isn't just a wiring. This isn't, you know, just networks. This is something, it's 
embedded in something organic, just like anything else like that's alive. And all of these things interact together in a kind of ecosystem. And because we do map it, I thought a planet might make a good metaphor for that. Yeah, when you think about it, we have like electric meat. Yeah, it really is. It, it's electrified meat. And so if you stuck like a wiring system inside of a steak. <laughs> or, you know, as many living, people have done in like high school, a wiring system in a frog leg. There you go. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, something that's a, you know, a living substrate with the wiring system. You're not just going to take into account just the wiring on its own. Right. Yeah. And, and so I was actually thinking about this because I was wondering, how do you think our reliance on these kind of mechanical wiring metaphors and the idea of like the brain as a computer, how do you think that kind of analogy influences how we think about the brain and how we study it? That's a great question. I think that on a, at a social level, it's reductive and it leads to sort of facile usage when people talk about children watching television too much and it rewires their brain. You know, like there's just some, you just crack them open, <laughs> there's some other board or whatever, and then you just like move a bunch of wires around and that's from watching television. And that's not actually how an ecosystem would work, you know, and it's not really how the brain works either. And I think. One of the things that I saw when I was looking at these studies is how siloed some of the the research is. Um, you know, they'll, they'll have one team over here looking at one aspect, right? Or not one team, but, you know, a field that examines one aspect of the brain, like the connectome. And then a field that's examining some other aspect, like, you know, the microglia and um, connectivity with the immune system or something like that. And it, it's just there are these parts that not unlike our interpretation of the brain itself, if you put them all together, would form a nice holistic picture, but it's kind of difficult to find them that way. That's true. Yeah, a lot of neuroscience, I, there's there's an emphasis now on interdisciplinary, but yeah, it's still not really there. You know, the, the memory people don't necessarily talk to the addiction people who don't necessarily talk to the mo- movement people. <laughs> Right. I think that's, yeah, it, it, so much does get, silent. you know, you get, you dig into your own little rabbit hole and, and sometimes in research, you know, you stay there <laughs> and you go to your conferences and you, the specialty conferences often are kind of, you know, the best ones to go to because you get super wonky and it's a lot of fun. And even though everybody talks about nature and so and all that other stuff, honestly, the specialty journals are kind of the most fun to read also. And I think all of that kind of reinforces those walls that we might, we, I say we, that researchers might set up, you know, between their subfields. Well, I wanted to get into the uh, electrified meat of this book, um, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> uh, one of the most important things in it, and it, it's something in the brain that comes up again and again and again, um, is the default mode network, or DMN. And this is something that I think probably relatively few people have heard of. And I was wondering if you could talk about it. 
Yeah, I'd be glad to. It's one of several networks that are postulated to operate as um, they're kind of widespread nodes or hubs, kind of depending on how specific you want to be about the language and the brain that are connected. And um, there's this network, which has this terrible name. I wish that they had come up with a kind of more memorable and applicable name, but um, it was called the default mode network because it was kind of first signs of it were discovered when they were imaging people and realized that when people were supposed to be, quote, off of the task, like remembering a series of numbers, when they were just supposed to be kind of relaxing, this thing kind of kicked into gear and started showing usage of oxygen. They're like, what the heck is this? The brain is still doing stuff, even if you think you're not doing anything. And so that was the default mode <laughs> of being like not on a task. And that's kind of where that originated. And then there's just a ton of research on it. I think it still has, there are skeptics out there about whether or not it genuinely exists, but there just seems to be a pile of research that ties together this network anatomically and functionally and makes it seem like a real thing. And it relates to a lot of aspects about us that are important to us. Um, how we sense ourselves and we do sort of personal review of ourselves, sort of autobiographical review of our past. Like you start ruminating and you spiral down, you know, because you think of all the crappy things you've done in your life to other people, which I'm not really laughing at, but you know what I'm talking about, oh, probably. I'm thinking, right? oh, the default mode network. That's what <laughs> happens when I'm trying to go to sleep and your brain is like, hi, yep. remember that thing you did when you were in middle school? Yep, exactly. And then you spiral. It's funny because everybody's like fifth grade, middle school, you think of it. <laughs> and then <laughs> you just start spiraling in this horrible ruminative, you know, just it's horrible. And that network, you know, by all the accounts is kicking into gear and going, hey, you suck. <laughs> but that's not its so you know, only role. That's just kind of when it's being a little bit too loud <laughs> inside your head. It does help define you from other people. It's supposed to be contributing to how we interact with other people and understand them, you know, do perspective taking, feel what they're feeling. So an empathy role there and a summoning autobiographical memory. We, you know, time travel, our ability to remember in the past is kind of a form of remembrance the past as opposed to the future. <laughs> Our ability to visit the past is a form of time travel, and we can use it also to, or it's contributing allegedly to our ability to see what might happen in the future as well. So it sounds very, I, I guess, self-referential. It is a self-referencing network is the way people describe it. Um, there's so many different ways that people have described it. I've seen it described as the sense-making network. And so some kind of central network for making sense of what's in, what is inside your own head and what you're taking in around you from the environment and other people. It is not the only network that has been characterized, but the people who are super fans of it like to think of it as kind of the orchestra conductor for the other networks. I do think it's one of those things that like neuroscientists should just never name stuff when they first <laughs> discover it. Well, because every single time, for example, they've named a thing. So for example, they named serotonin because they <laughs> found it in your gut. And so they named right. it Sero. No, I think they found it originally in the blood. So it was serotonin, as in oh, serum. Sero, you know, serum. And they originally identified it for its role in the gut. And guess what? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and then you have like the one that um, they were calling, uh, sometimes it's called hypocretin. Oh, what's the other name for it that's winning out over hypocretin? Um, anyway, it's uh, it's deemed to be important in like, 
arousal, so like wakefulness, um, and uh, kind of attention, <laughs> and just like orexin. That's it. Orexin. Yeah. And orexin was originally named because it makes things eat. <laughs> Isn't it great? I mean, what? I know they come up. It's like the people who name the genes. You're like, really? <laughs> it's just every time we name something, we're wrong. Don't name something. You'll be Seriously. wrong. <laughs> Don't make it have anything to do with the role you think it think it has because that's going to change and expand. I, I'm I'm with the Drosophila people. Like kind of in general, you just give it sort of a fun, memorable name and go from there. You know. <laughs> I am going to name this new brain region Shirley. Yes. <laughs> Princess Peach. <laughs> Today, I want to take a break to recommend a podcast to you called Our Opinions Are Correct, hosted by Charlie Jane Anders and Annalie Newitz. Every other week, Our Opinions Are Correct dissects a different topic related to science fiction, science, and everything in between. They've talked about how to write a good fight scene, the death of the universe, and even why science fiction needs a little bit of romance. Charlie Jane Anders is an award-winning author of several science fiction novels, including recently released Victories Greater Than Death. Annalie Newitz is an award-winning science journalist who writes for the New York Times and The Atlantic. We've even had them on our show before to talk about their book, Four Lost Cities. Together, the two of them will be friend cosmic monsters. Subscribe to Our Opinions Are Correct on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Now, back to our own um, podcast. So another thing that turns out to be key, um, then that kind of comes up over and over as you talk about the mechanisms behind a lot of the processes um, that you discuss in the book is something called oscillations. Um, Mm. And I love how you talk about them because they're the orchestral music of the brain. (laughs) (laughs) And I was wondering if you could talk about what oscillations are and what kind of we think they do. Gosh, that's a really huge question. I only got to touch on it a little bit, and I've been digging in it so much more since I wrote just sort of a brief summary of it. But it was, it's, it's, if the, a neuron, right, is the, the, the cell in the brain that does the electrical signaling. And so when it sends one down its axon, it fires. It's what we call that. And if you've got a group of them firing together, then you've got this kind of, it's like a lot of wires, excuse me, right? <laughs> that are all firing at once. And what they do is they kind of do this in waves, apparently, like these groups of neurons, like big groups, not just like 10 at once or something. You can see it at the level of a single neuron. You can span out to 10 or you can span out to 1,000. And they're doing this in this kind of same oscillatory free, like um, motion almost, if you can imagine it as a motion. And so it's a frequency with an amplitude. And they can have you know do this really fast kind of firing or a slow kind of firing. And these are like our, our brain waves. And if you've ever had an EEG that measures and separates these out so that you can look at them and see if they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, you see these as waves. That's how we visualize them. But as you know, right, musically, we talk about frequency and amplitude. And I have had in my head that if you took like one set of neurons is firing at a certain frequency, another set firing at another frequency and another at another, you can take, turn those into tones and make them into like a chord. (laughs) 
so that that makes, you know, music in your brain because they're doing these things almost like an orchestra would <laughs> to go back to DMN as the orchestra leader. I really love that. And I, I know we we actually talked about the oscillations previously. Yeah. <laughs> and I just love the idea of somebody composing like an orchestral or a like choir piece <laughs> that would be like four choirs, I bet, um, of kind seems, of like an EEG. Right. It seems like it'd be like, yeah, you had a great idea with that. I remember we discussed that and I was thinking, yes, <laughs> that's the music. that we, And then I've been thinking about it ever since because I really have been reading a lot about oscillations lately in terms of harmonics and some other stuff that I'm reading about the brain for a separate project. And in my head, I'm just like, yes, Bethany is right. We should try to make music from this. It would be so cool. And I'm now thinking of like, which neuron types would be different instruments. And I just, <laughs> or like, which voice types. And I feel like, I feel like tenor ones and trumpets are dopamine neurons. <laughs> because they might so, be overhyped. Yeah, oh, gosh. <laughs> I was just thinking because what they're so satisfying and there's such a payoff. <laughs> so, <laughs> <just having laughs> a couple um, of different responses to that. Right. Well, that's okay. Art is subjective. Right. There you go. Tuba neurons. <laughs> oh, tuba neurons would be so great. <laughs> I bet the cerebellum is full of tuba neurons, all very oh unappreciated. God. I know. The overlooked tuba section of the cerebellum. <laughs> I think we're on to something here. I really do think we are. <laughs> now, you do have chapters that cover kind of specific areas that people kind of want to tailor their brains, right? Yeah. And um, so one of them, of course, is IQ. Um, and I love so much that you dig into IQ um, because I think it's something that everybody's just been told is important. You know, like people with high IQs are smart and they're members of Mensa or mm -hmm. something. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk about what IQ is and where it comes from, because I feel like once we know that, maybe we aren't so impressed when a bunch of rich people start telling us about their 150 IQs. Yeah, it's an interesting thing that we focus on. I mean, it's just a measure from testing, right? But people tend to equate it with a lot of things, mostly having to do, like you say, with just how, how smart are you? And they want to use scores on IQ tests to illustrate that. And so, of course, then you get reduced to a number <laughs> and what that number means. But I mean, IQ is a modern invention. The IQ test is a modern invention. And I mean, after a lot of research for these. I spent two chapters talking about this and why anybody would even think that doing something to it would be useful, especially as an adult. And, you know, there's just not a lot of utility to that if you start to interrogate, like, why you would want to do it. Um, I just, it's just, it seems like a very modern kind of thing, testing some, a very modern world for the most part. But what I come down to in the chapter is a regardless, so, so, let me back up. People like to use this number, right? And equate it with intelligence. And then to use that, and then they like to use that to make a lot of arguments that kind of confirm biases that they may have. And I feel like if you're starting with a metric that was invented by people who themselves have biases, and they've done, you know, people have done a lot of things to try to remove those, but I don't see how that's possible given the birth of this thing. 
you're going to end up with some conclusions that have biases. And so to take it as a pure metric of something, as a pure measure or pure representation of somebody's capacities just seems wrong to me on a lot of different levels. But fundamentally, regardless of biological or physiological underpinnings or your status, um, or its status as kind of a ground truth of who, what your capacities are. The thing is, is that we can change this thing, whatever it is, with a lot of sociocultural factors that ease cognitive burdens. And that actually, when that happens, that metric, whatever it's capturing, increases. And so there's a lot that argues against treating it as something kind of innate. I feel like before we start attributing IQ or even our perception of intelligence to something that's trait, we need to consider the state of our society and what we can do so that people have space to meet their potential. So you mentioned this number was developed. And and when we say this number, I mean, someone's IQ is usually standardized to about like average is deemed to be 100. Mm -hmm. And then like a certain number of deviations above or below that mean is like a measure of you being extra. And of course, (laughs) everybody firmly believes they're above average, because that's how averages work. Um, (laughs) And what I was wondering is, you know, you mentioned this, this invention of the IQ comes from kind of a place of bias, where does IQ and test for it, where does that come from? I think people were trying to capture, they had noticed that when they administered tests for different things, like, you know, like reading scores and re- math scores and things like that, that, that people who did well on one kind of tended to do well on another. And, and I'm not a statistician. So let me just put it that way. And I don't I don't think I describe statistics when I'm just shooting on the cuff about them very well. But I did have this part of the book reviewed by a statistician just to you know, can make sure um, that I was characterizing things correctly. And there is some uh, and they inferred from this kind of, you know, ability across these tests that there was some factor that might explain this capacity that this correlation among these tests. And ultimately, what you get after a long history from that is that this factor is related to how you score on IQ tests and that that is kind of a representation of your kind of general cognitive ability or your intelligence. And then you get to where people kind of try to take that to stratify, and again, bringing biases to the table. And so, through the history of application of these tests, you know, they've, they've used it to try to argue that even like like women of what do they say it's something like women of low morals or something like that you know that they were just they were going to score poorly on these or that that was just a thing that would happen if you were a woman of low morals they tried to stratify people as quote unquote these ableist terms of imbeciles morons and idiots based on their IQ scores you know um they even tried to like say that in, among indigenous peoples, those from different tribes would have different scores. And, and, and all of this, of course, is based on what these people are bringing to the table and the prism they're using <laughs> to interpret and view these things. And I think, you know, it's really important, as you mentioned kind of earlier, that 
a lot of IQ scores can be improved by things like environmental changes and environmental measures. And one of the most important studies that you cite about this is a study that I kind of feel like more people should know about. It's about a classroom intervention that was done in Belgrade. Right. (laughs) And I was wondering if you could talk about that. Right. So I came across this study because I was looking at the effects of education on on IQ scores, and it def- there, there's some effect of it. People who get more education, like even back in the 1920s, when people started using these scores, they found that if you, you know, tried to lift all boats educationally, the scores would go up. And so, you know, there's not this doesn't that doesn't come across as something just like you know trait situation. Um, but this study was really interesting to me. It was done in Belgrade, and it was interesting because it kind of some of the problems with studies, and not just in you know neuroscience and cognitive science and things like that, but a lot of studies is, is that the numbers of people they include are too small. They don't have control groups and things like that. And this fellow, Kvashev, I'm, Kvashchev, I'm sure I'm messing up his name, um, did a study that covered three years in a high school. And he had a whole group of high school students. Um, in one school and another group in the second school, they were about the same size, 147 in one group, 149 in the other. And in one school, they just, you know, did their school, <laughs> right? They just went through school like people do. But in the other school, he implemented this program. Where the students would get together and they would collaborate. And so there's a social aspect and collaborative aspect. So he did this. He implemented this intervention, this problem-solving intervention in this school, and he tested them a lot. He tested them at baseline. He tested them after three years of this intervention, and then a couple more tests at the beginning and end of their final year of high school. And what they found is that in, in the intervention group, and with the IQ test that they gave, we have a battery of 28 intelligence tests to these kids four times. And on those tests, the kids who had had the implement the intervention scored higher by like five and a half points compared to the kids who didn't have it. That was on the first retest. When they did the second retest at the end of the senior year, it was actually even an average of seven to eight points higher. Then they went, this guy who did the analyses and publicized them outside of Yugos- what was then Yugoslavia is a man named um, Stankoff is his last name. He and a colleague in Australia went and reanalyzed these data recently in 2020 and found when they did some calculations that used tighter variance values from the second retest, so they tightened up the data a little bit, the difference is even greater at like 14 IQ points for the intervention group, which is a pretty good-sized effect. And it's not like those kids got smarter, you know, in some innate way, but just, I mean, my inference from this is that engagement, that social engagement, that interest probably from teachers, from this man who's running this study, um, that problem solving together in this really creative way, because this is almost a version of kind of a creativity test, you know, divergent creativity, um, that, you know, all of that lifted those boats for those kids and led to those improvements. Yeah, I mean, that's what it kind of sounded like to me is like, well, if you teach kids to do creative problem solving, Mm -hmm. they'll do better on IQ tests, which often involve creative problem solving. Exactly. (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I think I, one of the, the points I make in those few chapters is that a lot of the the brain training things and things like that that promise to you know improve your global intelligence to make you smarter. The problem with those is there's no far transfer. This is all near transfer. If you do a lot of crossword puzzles, you're going to get pretty damn good at doing crosswords. Um, I think now Wordle, lots of people are suddenly getting really good at Wordle, right? When they weren't before because it didn't exist. <laughs> but you know that if some people define kind of your cognitive ability as a problem solving thing. Like if you're good at problem solving, you have this kind of fluid reasoning that facilitates it, then that is sort of the core of this overall cognitive ability. Well, if near transfer is just, you know, you can't overcome it and achieve far transfer, but you want people to really reach that potential for that cognitive ability, then yes, focus on problem solving skills and creative solutions to problems from an early age. And I was also interested that you were talking about things that actually boost cognition. And one of them is creative problem solving. But one of the other ones is something you call neuroergonomics. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm laughing because I've been doing I'm like, I was like, Oh, I've been doing this like my whole life. And so because I'm constantly cognitively overloaded, <laughs> I just do that to myself. I don't know why. And um, I think we all are, you know, cognitive overload is where you've just maxed out your space, like you, you can't fit anything else, you know, and you're like, quote, unquote, short term memory, you can't put that on the whiteboard and hold it there for very long, because we're all just overloaded and things that contribute to that overload. I imagine most of us can relate to this as well. Anxiety, and stress, right? That make that those make you less able to solve problems effectively and to be deliberative about it. So, and like cognitive one, overload is like too many things on your mind. Too much. Yep. You're, In my right, case, you're, it's when yeah. I'm like referring back to my days to do list like 50 times because I yeah. can't remember what's on it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and that to do list you have is kind of a neuro. It's a neuro support, and so neuro ergonomics is kind of a terrible word, but it's actually a field of study that's very serious. They, for example, are they'll do EEGs on pilots and simulations, and they are trying to see what's which brainwave changes will predict a pilot's not being able to register an auditory alarm because there's some chaotic situation going on. And they want to be able to kind of predict that so that they can do something else to call attention to that alarm and the pilot doesn't miss it. And so that's a neuroergonomic thing to provide that support, that accommodation for a situation like that. But on a level where most of us are not pilots, <laughs> we still need supports like that. Your to-do list is one of them. Um, I use, you know, Google Calendar alerts and I use them a lot. I have for every single thing I put on that calendar, including today's meeting, two days before, one day before, 30 minutes before. And because sometimes not even that works, when I get that last alert, I set it to unread in my Gmail inbox and mark it as important. So it's at the top of my inbox because I know still after 25 years of receiving emails that if it's unread and it's at the top, I'm going to notice it. <laughs> so that's an accommodation for me. So it's kind of, I guess we, you're calling it an accommodation, but a lot of it's kind of like ways to stay organized. It's a way to stay organized, but also it's, I don't have to bear that load in my head and do the work and commit the resources to keeping that in my memory. 
which I'm honestly probably not very good at because I'm already cognitively overloaded from so many other things. And so that's a way that I at least don't take up space with these other things and can have that space for, you know, writing a feature that I need to file tomorrow and stuff like that and not distracting myself constantly. And I was really, I was wondering your section on IQ and cognition. We know, for example, that IQ has racist roots. It's been used for racist things, um, yeah. as you mentioned. Um, and a lot of IQ interventions come down to things like improved social equity. Yeah. And this has actually made me wonder, should people be trying to improve their own IQs? Like, is this an intervention that we should be looking at? Because one scientist you talked to about making people smarter said, oh, man, it's really, it's really too bad. We don't know how to do it. it w- someone who figured out how to make people smarter would win the Nobel Prize. <laughs> right. And I mean, the thing is, is that it's, it's because of the, the social effect. But I think doing it, indiv- so doing it individually is not the same, right, as a population level effect. And I think that if you want to see improvements at the population level, you do things, you know, socially that will lift those boats. And I mean, I know that that scientist did tell me that. And I think in a sense, first of all, you know, the Nobel Prize itself is a little bit fraught, right? But it would be an achievement in the sense if if the improvement came about in a way that had this population level effect and weren't just something an appeal so you could be Bradley Cooper and the smartest person in the room and limitless. Okay. So it's more of a it, it's more about kind of improving the population as a whole and not individual. So if if the person won the Nobel Prize because they could make people smarter, quote unquote, then and and the way that they did that is because they came up with some social solutions that let people achieve their full potential, that seems like a prize-worthy achievement to me and um rather than oh look, I invented a pill and now everybody's brilliant and I'm not quite sure what help that would offer <laughs> in the end. You know, um, because there are so many different ways of actually being smart. Yeah. So I also appreciate how you covered a bunch of other things that were a little more common than people trying to gain 50 IQ points. Um, And that's things like anxiety and trauma and depression. Um, And this is where we get into the mind bending drugs. (laughs) Um, Because, as you note in the book, psychedelics are having a moment. And I was wondering... (laughs) Why do you think psychedelics are having such a moment in kind of the fr- the field that I would call neuropsychopharmacology, which yeah. is brain altering drugs? <laughs> oh, I think you know, I there. That's a tons of ways to answer that question. First of all, I think Michael Pollan might have had something to do with that, but I feel like we got a little more relaxed about cannabis, right? And so it, everybody's like, ooh, this is a gateway drug. But what it kind of may have ended up being was a gateway drug to making it okay to look at what some of these other drugs do. And so that's one possible reason. Um, there's some, you know, accessibility now that I think it's, it's just 
the world is easier. It's easier to find things in the world than it used to be. You don't have to go down to, you know, the part of the park on Sunday where everybody hangs out and deals their psychedelics and things like that. It's kind of a lot easier to come by stuff like this and try it. And I think that there is less, I mean, a, a removal, right? And I, some of the like legalization of cannabis is related to this, of the moral panic that people have about, oh my God, drugs. And that's being kind of helpful too. So it allows more of a sober quote, sorry, <laughs> or maybe less of a sober look at what these really could do and if they could be effective therapeutically. Never be sorry for putting puns on this podcast. I, sh- I, I should never apologize for puns. I never love them apologize. too much. I will not. Truly, they are great. Um, Withdrawn. <laughs> so, and I was kind of wondering, what do we know so far kind of about how psychedelics work and why exactly they might help? Because, you know, I, I kind of know how psychedelics work in that I know they are serotonergics and they hit mm-hmm. serotonergic receptors. Most particularly, they're big in like serotonin three. Um, right. <laughs> but you were actually looking at this more in kind of a network perspective. And I was wondering if you could talk from a network perspective of how these psychedelics might be performing. Yeah, I was looking at it from a network perspective because I wanted to give my reader something to use throughout the book as 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 kind of, you know, to hold on to. And so I talk about these three networks, the attention network, which is called the salience network, and our executive function network, which is called a gajillion different things in the literature, which is really annoying, and our default mode network. And, you know, they kind of Work, they're supposed to optimally work together in the way the immune system does, not that one is really strong, but that there's a balance and a specificity to the situation, right, rather than being weak or strong and all these other things. And um, it's interesting you mentioned serotonin because what I saw in the literature so far, and I would like to pause for a minute and say – this stuff is average findings, right? And individuals will have their individual responses. And this isn't to say that those aren't real or anything else like that. So all of this is just average stuff. And there does seem to be some promise for psychedelics when it comes to mood. And that is in keeping with their mechanism of action. I didn't find quite as much when it came to stress and anxiety when People did studies on these um, a little bit. It just kind of depended on the psychedelic. And the role of those networks is, is that, for example, maybe, you know, if your default mode network is being a little loud and yelling at you and telling you you're a horrible human being, there are overlaps there between anxiety and depression when you're getting those internal messages. And it's possible that one effect of these is that it kind of shushes that a little bit and lets you see outside of yourself a little bit more. And I I noted something that you said, you know, this is averages. These are not individual responses. And one of the things I really love about this book is that not only do you go through what might work for tailoring your brain and what might not, you actually go through the studies and say, hi, so there were this many people in this study. (laughs) This is the intervention. This is what open label means. Um, And you even include a checklist for people to look at when they find a new brain intervention. Um, And I was wondering, what do you hope people will take away from kind of understanding the methods behind these studies? Thanks for that question. I, I like that question. I'm, because my, my goal in writing this book 
I can assure you it was not vast millions. <laughs> My goal in writing this book was to try to be helpful for people and that they would come away with some information that was useful. And one of those pieces of information is, you know, what what makes a study kind of what, – what, what makes one study and the evidence it produces stronger than maybe evidence from another? And so one of those things is how many people does it include, right? And so I did think it was important to say this study had 32 people and then they split them into four groups. <laughs> You're getting down to almost like family level <laughs> numbers here in your comparisons. And that's just, you know, a caveat. It's something to keep in mind. And to say, to let people know if something's open label, well, if you know what you're taking, that obviously, well, maybe not obviously to some people, but, you know, there will be some unconscious effect of that if, you know, it's not something just directly physiological with zero input, you know, from your your activity of your brain and your psychology. So I think it's important for people to know that if it says open label, that means we didn't do it unknowingly. It wasn't tested with people not knowing what they were doing. And there wasn't, you know, some sort of like control placebo and an active drug and nobody knew which one they were getting. I think that's important information to have. Yeah. And I mean, you didn't, this is not specifically referenced in your book, but some controls are harder than others. Yes. When you're trying to do like a double blinded study where sure. neither the doctor nor the patient knows what drug they are receiving. And I'm thinking in particular, acupuncture, it's really hard to do yeah. sham acupuncture. <laughs> Right. I know. I remember when I first started, I've written a couple of times about acupuncture and mentioned it in the book as well. And yeah, I mean, how are you recreating a needle stick <laughs> without actually sticking someone with a needle, right? And the psychedelic studies are kind of similar, and they've got some interesting workarounds for those. Um, you know, if it's a microdosing, you're not really supposed to be, you know, tripping your eyeballs off or anything if you're microdosing, but I haven't done this myself. But if you do it, evidently, there's a little bit of a feeling. And so as a control in some studies where they're testing these, they use niacin, which I have taken and have had this experience and it brings on this flush. And, you know, you get like red chested and your face gets flushed and there. And that's kind of sort of like, you know, your your substitute placebo in this case so that people maybe think oh i have this weird feeling maybe i'm taking the psychedelic and as well as psychedelics you also talk about cannabis and cbd um which are also super having a moment especially cbd yes um and most of us kind of know that the active ingredients for cannabis is delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol if you don't know that hey the active ingredient in cannabis is delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol aka delta 9 thc um and we know that we have cannabinoid receptors all over the brain that respond to this but what about cbd like where does that fit in what's kind of the idea behind it so people are testing that i think especially as an anti as an anxiolytic and to to see if it will sort of mitigate feelings of anxiety and i i know people who swear by it and again this is just averages right it's kind of hard to find kind of randomized confirmation because the trials, I, I think I mentioned this in the book, the trials, a lot of maybe randomized trials are underway, meaning that they've allocated people randomly to groups and then they're going to like try CBD and a placebo or something on them. And then you're not finding that they've completed the trials. And then a meta-analysis I found, which still didn't have very many people in it. There were 25 studies in the meta-analysis 
and there were 927 people total in those studies, which Oof. doesn't seem like a ton. That is I know, low. Right? Yeah. It's, I, I put it in the book, and I hope I did my math right, it's an average of 37 people per study. So, you know, not surprisingly, the results for that were mixed. <laughs> There's so many mixed results. And so, you know, I think probably the looser studies like observational trials are like, eh, maybe there's something here. And then if you get into something a little stricter, a little more controlled, they don't find quite as much or they find nothing. And so I'm, if I, from, from my perspective, that says this isn't doing a ton for people, but I do also know people who individually find great benefit from it. And again, this is just all averages. And I also found it was interesting that you spend a lot of time in the book talking about psychedelics um, and you spend time in the book talking about, you know, cannabinoids. You also talk about things like um, transcranial magnetic stimulation, uh, transcranial direct current stimulation. Please nobody do that. That seems Please very don't. scary. Um, yes. But I was also really struck that there are things that the book doesn't cover. So it actually doesn't go into the FDA approved therapies for things like, you know, depression or anxiety, you know, kind of the, the antidepressant drugs that probably a lot of people who listen to this podcast are taking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was kind of wondering, why did you focus on kind of the the psychedelics or kind of the more um, kind of in progress stuff, as opposed to some of the things that people might already be on? Yeah, thank you for asking me that question. And uh, maybe some of this was left on the cutting room floor. Um, I did have to make decisions about what to include and what not to include. But for the most part, what I wanted to focus on, and uh, again, was just trying to capture what seemed to be in the zeitgeist right now, what people were wondering about and looking at and maybe planning to try to do to themselves, like transcranial current stimulation, which I guess doubling down on that, try, don't do that. That doesn't seem like a great idea to me. And I feel like... Your brain is electrical. Please don't yes. zap it. <laughs> Bad idea. Please don't do that to your People head. complain of burns. That's not <laughs> good. And more. You know, you're just like, ah, I know a lot of that's anecdotal, but it's still kind of scary. Um, and, you know, with the prescription medications, first of all, I think a lot of people have written about those or a lot of books about, right, a prescription antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs and that kind of thing. And I do feel like, for the most part, these are things you really should consult a clinician about. And I'd mention them in passing that, you know, it almost seems like a binary distribution where some people feel great benefit from, you know, antidepressants and some people just don't feel like they experience anything, which takes me to why I talk about actual FDA-approved things in the mood chapter, especially, um, first of all, because the people have to jump through so many hoops with those prescription drugs to get to some things that seem to be so promising and maybe would be better to be able to try earlier on, like TMS and ketamine. And so I wanted to talk about those in that chapter, especially because it seems like an enormous burden to me. This is the U.S. healthcare system. I don't know that it applies anywhere else, but that people have to quote unquote fail seven or eight antidepressants and even be in really exigent circumstances before they're allowed to try to access these things. And 
I did want to kind of get back to some of the kind of bigger themes of this book, um, because there are some actual real takeaway themes um, for tailoring the brain. And you have one phrase in here that I think sums up so much of brain interventions that I want it cross-stitched everywhere. I love it. Um, the phrase is, the brain is not a slot machine. <laughs> it makes me happy. And I was wondering if you could talk through what you mean by that. <laughs> Um, so I, first of all, I had to find that. So hang on a second. <laughs> You're going to quote my book at me. And I'm, like, I'm Wait, sorry. I said it's near now. the end. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm just in like my PDF going, wait, where did I put that about the brain? I, I mean, I know what it means. I know what I mean generally, but I want to make sure I'm reflecting myself. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> so I, Across a lot of the things that I looked at, if there were effects, they were so tiny. And when people are studying the effects, a lot of the time they're looking at just like this pathway that where maybe the active ingredient in like a supplement was probably going to do something. And so that's why they tried it in these studies. And my point of this isn't that you're, my point is that your brain is not a slot machine. It's not just this one levered thing that you put a quarter in and you pull this thing down and it gives you an output. That's just not how it is. And it doesn't operate by a single pathway that a single active agent might, you know, affect in some way. There are many, many, many pathways operating in there right now. And when you think about all the functions of our brain, and I know that people who study hearts are going to get mad at me about this, but you know, the heart has a fairly narrow range of function. Even if you look at its endocrine function and include that in the other functions of the heart, it's still not as complex and broad as the various functions of the brain. And so going after just like one pathway in the brain, targeting one single pathway and going, this will tweak it, everything's fixed, just seems like an untenable starting point to me. Yeah, it, it, well, that's one of the reasons I really liked that phrase is that so often, kind of people who are just getting into like the idea of intervening in your own brain, um, they'll go, I know what I need, I just need increased serotonin. Right. And right. you know, some of that is down to science journalists like us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who Damn it. <laughs> maybe <laughs> reported a bunch of things like this drug works by increasing your serotonin. That's right. not how that drug works. Um, <laughs> looking at you, antidepressants, they do technically increase your serotonin, but that's not why. Um, right. Anyway. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of times we start to learn things about the brain and we're like, I know we'll just elevate dopamine. That'll fix it. Or right. we'll just elevate serotonin, that'll fix it. Or let's just elevate GABA, that'll fix it. <laughs> like, like we're, I don't know, making tweaks to a bread recipe. <laughs> or an audio soundboard, right? If you just lower this one up and this one down, and you're just going to get like the exact perfect sound that you want out of your brain. And and it doesn't operate that way because each one, each thing that you do influences all the other things. And so you're not going to have a setting that you can achieve for each of these aspects of function. Because when you tweak one, you're kind of tweaking the other ones at the same time. Again, because it's a planet, not just a wiring system. The brain is very bad at being its own control. It's not great at it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you do go through kind of the fancy gadgets and the drugs. But when you dig into the methods, you find that a lot of them are mm, mixed, 
mixed is a word that comes up a lot. Oh um, my God. Yes. <laughs> and what I rather appreciate is that you did find a couple of methods that appear to work really well. And one of them is exercise. It seems <laughs> like there's very little that a nice long walk around the block won't help. I know. It's so boring, right? I mean, the thing is that one in one of the checklists at the end of the chapter, I just, you know, one of the things I have is physical activity. And I would like to say that physical activity, not just the, the exercise version of it, which a lot of people I think feel is like an, it's imposed on you. It's like, even if you like to read in school, if they assigned you a book, somehow that book was a bigger burden than if you had just like found it on a bookshelf somewhere and started reading it. And I feel like exercise is that way. It's a subset of physical activity, but if people are like, you need to get more exercise, it just kind of seems like a burden where for some people. Whereas if you're like, how about let's go on a walk today? Well, you know, that's kind of still exercise, but it's physical activity and you're doing it with a friend. And the research that I found over and over and over again, especially effect sizes relative to a lot of other stuff people try, those things offer benefits. Moving around gives you benefits for a lot of these aspects of things that people feel they struggle with, like stress and anxiety and attention and memory and even maybe how you're going to score on an IQ test in the end. And I like that you emphasize that it's moving around because, you know, there's people with lots of different abilities out there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this doesn't need to be jazzercise. Exactly. <laughs> and I was I was trying to be very careful about that because I have some issues along those lines myself and I have family members with, you know, who would need accommodations to move around. And so it's just at whatever level of physical activity you can achieve, you know, do try to do it. And you definitely it's not a situation where they're like, yes, you must now become an ultra marathoner. That's nothing like that. This is very modest levels of just being active. You could be in your kitchen baking for, you know, if you love baking (laughs) and you do it like a couple of hours, that's physical activity. And you also know, you know, going for a walk with a friend. And I was really struck by how many of the interventions that you cited in the tailored brain were about other people, Um, like interacting with people, caring for other people. Um, the importance of empathy. And I, I was really amused by this because I know these days everyone is describing themselves as an empath, like we're in some Mercedes <laughs> Lackey novel. What is empathy? Because it's not that. <laughs> <laughs> it's I, I, I like the idea of thinking of it as a resonance where you, you're with somebody and they express something and you resonate with the emotion behind what they're expressing and it doesn't mean that you're being them it just means that you've put yourselves in that position that they're in and you can kind of you feel how somebody would feel in that position and it's not something that you just have to like come to and that you're necessarily born with you can practice that and you can put a pause on yourself I mean, I think about this with Twitter, still working on it, where, you know, my inclination, because I come from a sassy, pretty sassy culture, is, you know, to like dunk and be a smart ass and all this other stuff. And what I've been really trying to do is, and this is going to sound so earnest and sincere, but I've really been trying to just put a pause on that trigger finger (laughs) and put myself in the shoes of the person who might read what I say or other people who might read it 
and maybe just not do that and maybe attend to the fact that I don't need to zing somebody and potentially who knows what they're doing right now, what their life is like. So I don't need to do that. That actually really leads into something else I was thinking about is that in the chapter on the social brain, um, you talk about disempathy, um, which is where we kind of disengage from other people. And right. it's something that happens in cognitive overload. When yeah. you have way too much on your mind by like, I don't know, a massive pandemic affecting everything from whether we can send <laughs> our kids to school to our jobs or whether or not we can get toilet paper. Yes. It does things <laughs> to our brains. Yeah. And it's not good for our social empathy. Yeah, it's not great, right? Because if you can't, like what I just described, and being deliberately empathic or trying to be that way, um, that takes, a, it adds to a cognitive burden to stop myself to exercise that executive control to tamp down the impulse and not just cut loose, right? That requires resources. And so exercising that part of me does take resources. And when you are overloaded, and you're overburdened cognitively and otherwise, it's a lot harder to be deliberative. And I think, I mean, everybody probably has this experience, you had a really horrible day, you're completely just overwhelmed, you come home, you have a partner whom you love, right? And just one thing, like they didn't, recycle the milk jug. This is not a personal thing for me or anything. It just, you know, they didn't recycle the milk jug and you're like, ah, and you just kind of lose it. Well, you know, that is doing that out of not because you don't like your partner anymore, but because you're overloaded and you can't just pause and be deliberative because you're just out of space for that. Yeah. I think it's important to kind of recognize the importance of kind of, it comes up in your book a lot, mindfulness, recognizing yeah. your own state of mind. Yes. I think it's important. And this is another thing I work on is because I'm not great. This is not definitely not something that comes naturally to me is to check your emotions and identify them and you know determine like at what level you've got them ratcheted up to <laughs> from the situation at hand maybe and do some analysis of that and yes with my like mindfulness and empathy have this overlap because you know one of the features of mindfulness is to observe without judgment which means you don't just completely lose it <laughs> when somebody says something kind of like, saucy to you or offhandedly angry to you, maybe because you are just observing without judgment and maybe not taking it personally. Or, and I think a lot of us really are prone to this, they say something you may, you think, oh, was that about me? <laughs> right? Yeah. And you start to like roll it up into like your own like self-perception and you start that ruminating thing and you're like, my gosh, I'm the worst human who've ever lived, who's ever lived. <laughs> and that makes it harder for you to empathize with other people because you're so focused in on like how terrible you are. Um, so I did want to ask during your research for this book, was there anything that you realized you had been doing that actually didn't have a lot of research to support it? Like, did you throw out your brain games? <laughs> so I didn't have brain games because I just don't, speaking of attention, I just don't, I don't have a good attention span for stuff like that. I do like, you know, 
crossword puzzles and stuff like that. But I never really felt like they were making my brain do anything except just kind of keeping me busy and perhaps off of Twitter. Um, and the one thing I did find was Omega-3s. I sort of thought that they would keep their promise better, and they didn't. And I was sort of surprised by that. I wasn't really using them for myself, but I had used them on my children when they were younger because everybody was, you know, that was all the maybe you know, the rage at the time. It's been a while. So I came into that thinking that I might find something there, and I didn't. I was kind of surprised by that. And I was also wondering, kind of, does this go the other way? Was there anything in your research that you added that you kind of gave yourself permission to do um, based on what you found? Yes. So I am not speaking of not things that are natural. I'm not naturally somebody who does mindfulness. I'm where I live. It's very popular and it's been a buzzword for several years. And so if there was something I kind of came into this book where I was not especially agnostic, it was, well, what will mindfulness really do? I had this idea that for people whom it benefited already kind of had that stance in the first place. They were kind of people who'd be drawn to mindfulness. And I'm not one of those people. So while I was writing this book, it was during the pandemic, almost in its entirety, that process. And I started doing some of that really briefly, just kind of doing some of these low level mindfulness practices. And if it didn't, it just, it helped me so much. <laughs> I would sit there and start, you know how it was, if you were covering COVID and you're doom scrolling, you're reading all the literature and it just, wow, so overwhelming. I would be sitting there in an anxiety spiral and I would just be like, okay, you need to click out of this. You need to engage your salience network. You need to look at this room around you right now. Your family's here. We're all upright. And just kind of be in that moment and get myself back into the present. It makes me so happy that you tell yourself to engage with your salience network. <laughs> <laughs> that is about the nerdiest thing I think I've ever heard in my life. And I love it. <laughs> It's truly, that's, that is some of my self-talk right there. Salience Network. That's <laughs> Salience. the self-talk we all need. <laughs> well, Emily, thank you so much for sharing your braininess with us. Bethany, thanks for having me on. That was a fun conversation. We did not cover even half of this book. Wait till you read the bits about the military and how the Egyptians thought the brain was made of mucus. And if you'd like to learn more about Emily Willingham and her new book, The Tailored Brain, From Ketamine to Keto to Companionship, A User's Guide to Feeling Better and Thinking Smarter, we've linked to more information at scienceforthepeople.ca. You can follow us there on Twitter or Facebook. You can subscribe to the show if you like. Our show is supported exclusively by our donors. And if you've got the urge, you can also support us on Patreon with a monthly donation to support our hardworking editors and producers. And if you liked this episode, why not share it with a friend? After all, if this new book has taught us anything, it's that the best brains work best with other brains in a nice social situation. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgower, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 